Thank you, Pastor Dan. Uh, it's good that we can still touch base with one another and uh, participate in the worship. We're continuing our series in the book of Acts, and what an exciting series it has been for us so far. We come now this morning to Acts 17, and we're going to be focusing together on verses 16 through 32. This morning's message will actually be part one of a two-part message. And we're going to talk together about the message that Paul brings here on uh, what is called Mars Hill. And we learn together that you and I are to spread the gospel wisely. You and I are to spread the gospel wisely. Imagine the following scenario with me. Imagine someone took you to a place that you'd never been before, a unique culture, a strange place, uh, people that you're not familiar with, you don't know their customs, you don't know their culture, you don't know anything about them, and, and someone kind of dropped you into the middle of that culture, and you had the obligation to tell them the story of Jesus, the, the good news of Jesus Christ. So imagine you are a believer this morning, and you are given this opportunity to speak to a culture that you're unfamiliar with. How would you go about that? I mean, what would you do uh, to give them the story of Jesus? Now, keep in mind, these might be people who are completely unfamiliar with the God of the Bible. They may be unfamiliar at all with the, even the name of Jesus Christ. And so all of the things that you would, would start with, maybe they're not even familiar with. So you would have to backtrack. And, and start really with the, the fundamental assumptions that undergird the gospel. Teach them the truth about who, who God is. There's some interesting stories throughout church history of those who have gone as missionaries to exactly that kind of a situation. They've gone to a place that they were unfamiliar with, uh, perhaps a people that they had little familiarity with, and they, they learned about those people, and they presented them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, this morning, we look at Paul. Paul explaining the gospel to a group of people that are unfamiliar with the message. A group of people, in fact, that were even unfamiliar with the, the Jewish God, the, the, the God Yahweh, the, the God of the Bible. And so he sets out to explain to them Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ, but he does so without them having any background. And so from this vignette here in Acts 17, we learn a great deal about Paul's philosophy of personal evangelism, especially as it relates to those that were unfamiliar with the God of the Bible. Now, of course, this is applicable for us on an individual basis as we share the gospel with others. We are in a society that is increasingly postmodern, as some ob observers have called it, or even post-Christian, as it has been, been described. And so it is applicable for us individually as messengers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's also applicable for us as a church. Because we as a church are ministering in a, in a context, in a world, and, and to see how Paul relates the message to his own context is very valuable for us. How is the church built? How do Christians propagate the gospel? So I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts 17. Acts 17. We're going to begin our reading in verse 16, and we're going to read down through verse 32. As we read Acts 17... Beginning in verse 16, we'll see 
Paul speaking to the philosophers there in Athens. This is God's word. Now when Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange thing to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the object of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, those times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to, to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. May the Lord bless to our understanding this, the reading of His Word. Paul is finding himself in an unusual situation. He's finding himself in a situation that, if you understand our study, you've been following our study, you know uh, that there has been some violent opposition. It started in Thessalonica. You remember that Paul was run out of the city in Thessalonica because of his message, and then he made his way to Berea. And actually, the word was, was well-received there in Berea, but those from Thessalonica followed him there to continue to cause him trouble. And so after these brushes with violent opposition, he makes his way out of the city of Berea, and he sends word for Timothy and Silas to meet him there. 
Now, the text is a little vague as to the exact chronology of what is taking place here, but what seems to be happening is uh, he sends for Timothy and Silas, and when they meet together, they conclude that uh, Timothy and Silas ought to go back to visit the believers in Thessalonica. And of course, the reason for that is because they need encouragement, their departure was sudden, but by the same token, if Paul returns to Thessalonica, it would have just created more problems and wouldn't have not been helpful for those believers there. So um, what seems to be happening is Timothy and Silas are going back to Thessalonica. Paul is now waiting for them in the city of Athens. We, we think that because in 1 Thessalonians 3, um, and you don't need to turn, but in 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 1, Paul says to the Thessalonian believers, Therefore, when we could no longer endure, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and to send Timothy, our brother, to establish and encourage you. So Paul is saying, we sent Timothy and I waited in Athens alone. So that's what's happening in our text this morning. Uh, Paul is kind of stuck in a holding pattern in Athens. And what we observe here is that a wise witness capitalizes on every opportunity for evangelism. A wise witness capitalizes on every opportunity for evangelism. So as we as believers are to be proclaiming the gospel wisely, that means us using every opportunity that we have. So here in our text, Paul is waiting in Athens, right? He's waiting for, for his compatriots, for his fellow laborers to join him. But he's not just biding his time away. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like you're in kind of a holding pattern? Like you're just waiting for life to move forward? Maybe in the midst of this pandemic, when everybody's been told, just put everything on hold, you're just kind of stuck at home right now. Do you feel like you're just kind of in a holding pattern, waiting for life to move forward? Perhaps some circumstance in your life is causing you to have to wait for, for the next big thing, the next big chapter. Maybe it's a, a new job or a marriage or a child to, to arrive. Uh, whatever it is, do you ever feel like this is just a, a waste of time? I'm just biding my time until the next thing happens. Well, Paul was in a holding pattern. He was just waiting for the next thing to happen. But what we observe here is that Paul didn't feel stuck. He didn't feel like this was wasted time. He wasn't just biding his time away. He was instead using the time. He was capitalizing on every moment. So Paul is here in Athens. It's the cultural pinnacle of the, of the world at that time. It would have been looked at by Paul and many others as a great place for, um, for the culture of the day. Now, you'll remember that they've come from Berea directly before that. They were in Thessalonica. And now those in his band have gone back to encourage the believers at Thessalonica. Paul makes his way down by himself to the city of Athens and stays there. Paul, of course, was a cultured individual. He would have appreciated the grandeur of the city of Athens he would have noticed the magnificent works of art, the sculpture that was all around him. But the interesting thing is that as Paul is observing this city, he hardly seems to notice 
the greatness of the city, the grandeur of the city. What he notices instead is that it is an idolatrous city. Notice with me in verse 16, when Paul waited for them at Athens, what happened? His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. I wonder, how do we see the world around us? If you're a believer this morning, if you have you have tasted of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. You've been born again through faith and repentance. How do you look at the world around you? Do you see the things that glitter physically, as it were? Or do you have spiritual eyes to see the realities around you? I wonder as we've gone through this week, do we just see co-workers? Do we just see those walking down the sidewalk, or do we see eternal souls for whom Christ died? What about you and I? If we were in a situation like Paul, would we we be thinking of the opportunities that are around us to give the gospel? Do we take advantage of the opportunities that we do see? I would just ask us this morning, when was the last time that you and I shared shared the reality of Jesus Christ, the the life-changing work of the testimony of Christ with with our neighbor, with our friend, with our co-worker, with those within our civic organizations. Not just merely lived a good testimony before them, but, but gave verbal witness to the good news of Jesus Christ, to the truth of salvation. You see, there's a mission field around us. And so often we think about mission fields in terms of, of those places that are far away, The reality is there is all around us opportunities. The Austin metro area is one of the fastest growing metros in the country. Round Rock in particular is a fast growing city. And studies tell us over and over again that when people move to an area, they are uniquely open to building new friendships, to even making major changes in life. And those that study it with an eye to evangelism recognize that sometimes there are spiritual opportunities. There is a spiritual openness that might not exist at other points in people's lives. We think about those who even come to our nation from other places around the world. Do we see those as opportunities? Opportunities to to preach the gospel to to people from, from all around the globe. If your neighborhood's like mine, it's a wide variety of people from, from many different parts of the world, perhaps even your workplace, is a smattering of a collection of people from different cultures, from different languages. What an opportunity for a Christian to dialogue about the things that are important, the things that give them hope, the message of Jesus Christ. Do we take advantage of these opportunities? Do we look at those opportunities that are around us? Well, Paul sees an opportunity. And as a wise witness, he capitalizes on this opportunity to give the gospel to others. And so he preaches wherever he has opportunities. We see in verse 17, he does what? He preaches in the synagogue. Now, we know from past accounts that this was the normal practice of Paul. But we also see in verse 17 that he preaches in the marketplace to any who would listen. And it is there that he encounters the philosophers. And the philosophers take him to what is referred to here as the Areopagus, right? This is the the high court of the land. 
Now, the Areopagus is an interesting um, spectacle in the ancient Greco-Roman world. This high court sat on a high hill, like a plateau uh, of the god Ares or Mars. And so you will sometimes hear this called Mars Hill. Um, You see that he had to go there and present his case to the philosophers there because they were the ones that had to give him official sanction to continue to preach his message in the city. And so he comes to this polytheistic center on the plateau of what is called Mars Hill or the Areopagus. And they ask him, okay, tell us about this message that you are presenting. So Paul actually has greater opportunity because he took advantage of the opportunities he had. And now we learn the second thing from our text that is important for us. And that is that a wise witness is sensitive to the hearer. A wise witness is sensitive to the hearer. Now, what does that mean? Well, Paul is very attuned to those he's speaking to. If you take this message here in Acts 17 and you compare it to what he did when he dialogued with the Jews of his day, you will see a very different approach. Now, it's the same message. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the way it is presented reflects the fact that Paul was sensitive to those that were listening. He knew exactly who he was talking to, and he did this, first of all, by being polite by being winsome. You'll notice something in verse 16. Paul observes that the city is literally full of idols. It may say in your translation, given to idolatry. The the literal rendering of that is full of idols. And in fact, that is very true. The city of Athens was full of idols. And as Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill, he could look around and he could see temples, He could see altars, he could see shrines to numerous gods, even within his own view. The city was full of idols. So how does Paul go about uh, presenting to a city that is full of idols? Well, notice what he says in verse 22. If you have your Bible open in front of you, you'll notice that he says, I perceive that in in all things you are very religious. Now, if you're using an old King James, that's rendered a little bit differently. And the way it comes across in the Elizabethan English almost sounds like he is, is insulting them. In reality, he's not. In reality, he's, he's somewhat paying them a compliment. He's, he's saying, I understand you are very religious people. He's commending them for their earnestness in seeking after truth. He, he compliments them where he can. He's He's polite, he's careful, he's winsome. He's not flattering them. He's not being insincere here. What he's doing is he he keys into something that is a reality, that is a truth that he can build a further conversation on. And then he says this. He says this is very interesting. I find this whole passage very, very interesting. He says, the one whom you worship without knowing. Paul is cordial. He's complimentary. And I wonder this morning, when we attempt to give the gospel, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to just kind of throw a grenade of the gospel in and run away so that we feel like we've met our obligation to tell other people about Jesus? Or do we have a genuine concern 
a genuine care for the person that is hearing the message of the gospel? Are we polite? Are we considerate? Do we have an understanding of the person that we are talking to? Are we really are we really evangelizing biblically if we are making the message obnoxious? Now, I understand there's an offense to the gospel. There is an offense to the cross. And there is, there's not going to be a way that we can take that offense away. But I wonder sometimes, do we actually add an offense to the gospel? I would just challenge us with the notion that perhaps... A picket sign is not the best way to present the message of Jesus Christ. Perhaps yelling at people, words of condemnation, is not the way that we ought to biblically be presenting the message of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of things out there that are, that are called evangelism. But what they really are is just hurling a truth bomb at people. And even though it might be true, it is not biblical evangelism because it completely fails to consider the person that is being spoken to. When you and I talk to non-believers, what is our attitude? Perhaps you're listening this morning and you are not a believer. Perhaps you've even had people present the message of Jesus to you in a way that was offensive, in a way that, that seemed to indicate that they didn't care about you. Can I just tell you, I'm sorry for that. It is true that we as Christians often fail in the way that we present the truth of Jesus Christ. We fail to think about the person that we're talking to, the person that we are dialoguing with. We fail to think about their needs, we fail to think about who they are as a person, what's important to them. We fail to even be polite. It's so easy for us in our polarized world to get engaged in an argument rather than a meaningful, sympathetic, polite presentation of the truth of Jesus Christ. We all fall into that temptation. And so for my unbelieving friends this morning, I would say, I'm sorry for the way that we as Christians so often fail to project the message of Jesus in, in our demeanor. And for those of you this morning that are believers, we know we have an obligation to give the message. How do we do that? Even when it comes time to speak the truth of separation from God, of, of condemnation that we all deserve because of our sin, when it comes time to speak those hard-edged truths do we do it with a lump in our throat and a tear in our eye, recognizing that, that while we must present truth, we must do so in a, in a loving and caring and concerned way? Do we speak adversarially? Are we trying to win an argument? Or are we trying to leave a testimony of who Jesus Christ is? We must be we must be polite. We must be friendly. We must be genuine in our interaction with other people. If people are going to be offended, let them be offended by the message, not the way in which we present our message. A few years ago, I read a book that I, I thought was very helpful on this front. 
It's a testimony of a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. The book is entitled Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. As I began reading this book, and by the way, I would recommend it for your consideration, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. Um, I do think that if you're an un unbeliever this morning and uh, you're interested in the journey of someone who was completely opposed to the message of the gospel, um, that you may, you may uh, benefit from her account. But believers can learn from it as well. In this book, she gives the testimony of how she came to faith in Christ, even though she had previously been deeply, deeply entrenched in an anti-God philosophy. She was not a believer. In fact, beyond that, she was a major player and a leader in agendas that were opposed to God. She was an English, uh, English professor and a PhD, and she, in a very strange twist of circumstances, um, struck up a rather odd friendship with a Presbyterian pastor. And over the course of several years, what started out as just wanting to learn about the quote-unquote religious right, she really built a friendship with this man and his wife. And in, that, in those years, they demonstrated an unconditional love, the love of Christ, as they patiently shared with her the good news. I was struck as I read this book a couple years ago about the incredibly loving, patient, and winsome way in which this man and his wife shared the gospel with Rosaria. One excerpt from her book reads this way. Before I ever set foot in church, I spent two years meeting with Ken and Flo in an on and off, uh, on and off studying scripture and my heart. If Ken and Flo had invited me to church that first meal, I would have careened like a skateboard off a cliff and I would never have come back. Ken, of course, knows the power of the word preached, but it seems to me he also knew that at that time I couldn't come to church. It would have been too threatening, too weird, too much. And so Ken was willing to bring the church to me. This gave me the room, the safety I needed to match Ken and Flo's vulnerability and transparency. And so I opened up to them. I let them know who I was and what I valued. I invited them into my home and into my world. They met my friends, came to my dinner parties, saw me function in real life. They made themselves safe enough for me to do this. What a wonderful testimony of two believers who certainly were dedicated to truth. They did not compromise the gospel, yet at the same time, they were genuinely concerned they, they cared for the person that they were speaking to. This is what I see in Paul's message. A consideration, a politeness, an ability to communicate to people the message that needed to be given. Beyond that, in this passage, Paul is actually employing familiar terms. And we ought to do that as well. If we're going to be sensitive hearers, if we're going to be wise messengers of the gospel, we should, we should use things that are familiar to our hearers. Now, you read this passage and you see this, uh, this you know, city given to idols, idols all over the place, and you read about this, this altar to the unknown God. Now, this may seem very strange to you, but, but a little bit of context, a little bit of historical context will really help us to understand 
um, what is taking place here. Um, there had been an occasion several months before, or excuse me, several years before, uh, several hundred years before, Paul's visit to Athens. There had been a major plague that had swept the city. And as this plague was sweeping the city, the Cretan poet Epimenides came up with a solution that he thought would pacify the gods that were causing the plague. And so from this same hill where Paul was now standing, 600 years before had been released this flock of sheep. And the theory went something like this. The Greeks believed that whatever gods were whatever God was causing the plague, the sheep would gravitate to that God. They would lay down near the shrine to that God and they would offer a sacrifice there. So, so you get the picture, right? There's this plague in the city. They release a flock of sheep. The, the, the sheep all scatter around the city. And then wherever the sheep lays down, okay, well, we must, we must need to make a sacrifice to that God to pacify that God. And so that's what happened. Sheep scattered all over the city. They laid down near shrines, and that was the God to whom they were then sacrificed. Well, here's the problem. A bunch of sheep laid down in various places, and there was no shrine nearby. So then the question was, okay, well, what do we do with that? Well, we must have missed a God. That was the theory, right? Well, well there must be a God that, that we've missed, that, that we don't know about. Remember, this is a polytheistic society, and they're trying to placate a God. Okay, so now what do they do? Well, they begin to set up these shrines around the city to the unknown God. Well, now fast forward 600 years. Paul makes his way into the city. As he makes his way on the path up to the Areopagus, he sees off to the side of the path this, this shrine, this, this altar to an unknown God. And of course, Paul's a good preacher, right? So what clicks in his mind? Ah, that's a sermon illustration. He tucks that away, and then he uses this as a means by which he can can talk to them about this God whom they don't know, who they worship without knowing who he is. It is true that Christians today are exceedingly weak and clear, uh, exceedingly weak and, and, and not sometimes articulate in expressing a biblical worldview, in talking with others about what they believe. Again, I referred to our polarized society. What we want to do as believers so often, what we're tempted to do is to kind of to cloister in our bunker and throw, throw truth bombs out there. Um, unfortunately, many of those truth bombs are just Republican talking points. And the reality is that we need to dialogue with people. We need to have conversations with people. We need to understand where people are coming from. We need to take things that are familiar to them and relate those to the truth. Yes, I understand. Natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. I, I understand that. I get that. But I also think it's true that biblical Christians are sometimes hesitant to give serious thought, serious interaction with the philosophies of this world. Paul's problem was not that at all. Actually, Paul well understood where these Greco-Roman philosophers were coming from. So much so 
that as you make your way through this passage, what you'll discover is that on several occasions, he actually uses phrases that are quotations from the Greek philosophers and poets themselves. On one, in one place in the text, he cites, this is from your own poet. Two other places, he also cites from their body of literature. Paul was, was well-educated. He understood the people that he was speaking to, and he actually used their own works. He cited their own works in making his case for the truth of Jesus Christ. He uses their phrases, and he actually critiques their view from a Christian perspective with tremendous fluency. Paul starts his message by appealing to that which they already are acknowledging, that there is a God whom they do not know. You're full of, he refers to this altar that he passed on his way into town with this inscription to the unknown God. He implies that this altar reveals the lack of understanding about the true God. Paul recognized that he was in a city that was pluralistic, syncretic, and idolatrous. They had many gods, and they believed they were all equally valid. All, all truth is given equal platform here in the city of Athens. No one has a corner on the truth. No one has a right to tell other people how to worship. When they called upon Paul to explain his message, they were open to adding that philosophy too because it was one God of many. I wonder, does that sound like any society you're familiar with? Does that sound like any culture or cultural direction of a place that you're familiar with? Certainly, many in, Amer many in America do not understand the truth of one true God. All truths are equally valid. That's, that's your truth, but I have my own truth, is the way that the world speaks of it. Oh, they may speak of a God, but in reality, we are increasingly a pluralistic, synchristic, idolatrous society. And the evidence of that is that the message of one true God and one way to God is increasingly offensive because it does not coincide with the synchristic religion of American society. This is the type of audience that Paul was speaking to. An audience that our culture is becoming more and more like every day. Paul then quotes from two different poets whom the Athenians would have been familiar with. He quotes Epimenides. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. And actually, Epimenides in that passage is referring to the god Zeus. Most likely, Eridus, another writer of, of the, that was venerated in Greek society, said the phrase, we are his offspring, which Paul quotes. Paul's not validating their pagan beliefs. We're going to see this actually next week in his message. He's not validating falsehood. He's illustrating that even their own wise men acknowledged there is a supreme God. And he is not an idol made with hands. And he is a God to whom all must answer. I wonder, does it puzzle you that Paul was well-versed in the culture of his day? 
Does it seem strange to you that this is the way that Paul would approach things? Uh, actually, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that this is his philosophy of ministry. 1 Corinthians 9 says, For though I am free of all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law is under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without a law towards God, but under law towards Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker of it with you. Paul preached to Jews as Jews. He preached to God-fearing Gentiles as God-fearing Gentiles. And he preached to these Greeks as a Greek. He understood his audience. He was, he was sensitive to them. It is true that a Christian witnesses understanding the importance of truth. But at the same time, the Christian should not only understand that truth, he must understand how to relate it to the person who is hearing. Walter Wilson was a multi-talented medical doctor that lived in the early 1900s. Besides a vocation in medicine, he also enjoyed traveling to various places, and eventually he became known uh, as a... As a is a high-caliber Bible teacher, and so in addition to his medical practice, he would travel and teach the Bible. One, one time he was visiting a small town in Kansas, and he always made it a point to visit with the doctor uh, of the town that he was visiting. This particular do doctor was well-known in town as an atheist, and he would pride himself on winning arguments against, Christian, uh, against Christians. So Dr. Wilson went to visit with Dr. White, the man who was known in town as the atheist who could out-argue any Christian. When Dr. Wilson came to visit Dr. White, he noticed a picture hanging on his wall. It was a picture of a doctor and a college professor, and Wilson asked him, he said, uh, did you enjoy taking classes from this professor? Dr. White responded that he did very much. He, he had enjoyed this professor. He'd enjoyed learning from him. And then Dr. Wilson went on to explain that that was his own father from whom this other doctor had taken classes. Dr. Wilson, of course, invited him to the meetings where he was teaching the Bible. And Dr. White said, well, I'm an atheist and I don't believe that the Bible is true or the God of the Bible. Dr. Wilson then responded, well, well, what part of the Bible do you not believe? The sciences, the, about the insects, trees, gravity, the rise and fall of kingdoms? Uh, do you believe the Bible is wrong when it says that husbands should love their wives, that children should obey their parents, that rulers should rule with justice and kindness? Well, of course, the doctor acknowledged that uh, the Bible is a good moral guidebook. And Dr. Wilson said that he was relieved by this, that in fact... You're already partly a believer, he said with a wry smile. And so again, he invited him. It was that evening that as Dr. Wilson taught the Bible and taught the message of Jesus Christ, that Dr. White began to understand, began to hear things that he had never heard before. 
And eventually, he heard an illustration that caused the atheist doctor to understand and accept Christ. How do we understand the person who is sitting across from us? Do we endeavor to understand? Do we strive to understand? I mean, we'll talk next week that a a Christian witness understands the imperative of truth. That's next week's message. That's part two. And so, so it goes without saying that we should speak the truth. There's a There's an illegitimate sense that we can compromise the truth of the gospel. We'll talk about that more next week, but the reality is there's also a legitimate sense in which we must relate our message to our hearers. We must understand where they are and and walk with them to the next step. We must not confuse message with method. The message must remain unchanged, uncompromised, but the methodology is not inspired. One of the problems that we have with evangelism is we, we tend to get dedicated to a certain method, as if that is the same as the biblical truth. Methods changed over, over time and culture. The message remains the same. And so when we're sharing the gospel with one who is from a non-Christian faith or an atheist or someone who is a cultural Christian, we're actually going to use different approaches. We're going to emphasize different truths while all the time holding to the ultimate truth. That's what we'll talk about next week. You're not going to be an expert on everything. In fact, there are some things that you're just simply going to be ignorant of if you're a committed, separated Christian. But there's no reward in being ignorant intentionally. Some Christians have been brought up with a kind of a bunker mentality that tends to see unbelievers one-dimensionally. You know that unbelieving friend, that unbelieving co-worker, that unbelieving neighbor? They're a person just like you are. Learn a little bit about them. Ask them questions. Discover things. We are sinners just like they are. They have needs just like we do. They aren't from another planet. They're just not believers yet. Can you legitimately say that you understand the belief of someone else, of your non-Christian friend? Can you say that you, you know where they're coming from? You've asked them to explain. Can I suggest something to you? Find your, your most unbelieving friend, right? The one that is most opposed to what you believe. Preferably one who is articulate in their own expression of faith. And take them to lunch. Okay, well, you can't do that yet. But, but meet with them one-on-one, or, or maybe after all this is over, invite them to lunch. Say, I want to buy you lunch, and I want to learn from you. I want to learn where you're coming from, what your perspectives are. And don't try to argue with them. Unless they invite you to do so, don't even explain to them why you disagree with them. Just listen. Ask questions. Reflect on what they're saying. You might actually learn something. We as believers need to be humble enough to learn from others. Furthermore, engage people at the level they are. Become interested in what they are interested in. Talk to them about what's going on in the world around us. 
And while you're building friendships, and particularly while you're sharing your faith, take people where they are. And so we see in this passage that God has called us to be a witness to the gospel. He's called us to be salt and light in the world. We live in a particular time and in a particular culture, and we must use God's word to reach to others. And let's do that with patience, with love, and with wisdom. You and I must spread the gospel wisely.